The following podcast contains uncensored coarse language. Listeners are advised that some of the following content may not be appropriate for those under 15 years of age. Hello everybody and welcome to the Cinema Catch-Up Club, the podcast for films that you probably should have seen by now. I'm your host, Dr. Stephen Platt. Thank you very much for downloading this week's episode. And this week, we are watching Full Metal Jacket. And the reason we're watching it is because it's turning 35 years old. Joining me as always, we have someone who has seen the film and someone who has not. Our guest who has not seen the film, it is science's own (laughs) Kate O'Sullivan. Hi, Stephen. It's me. Again, surprisingly, on a film I haven't seen by now. Look, at this point, it's it's a tradition. (laughs) Yeah, So, uh, yeah, we're just going to keep it going for a bit. Eventually, you'll see one. One It'll be a fun twist. I might have actually seen a film at some point in my life. We'll find out. Yeah, I mean, we now know you have seen at least... 10 or so yeah. from being on this program. So yeah, it's good. It's a good... Uh, we're, we're expanding good it. Yes. Um, full Metal Jacket. Mm. What do you know about this film? Uh, I know it is a war-adjacent rela- war, war and war-related film, mm-hmm. um, which would probably surprise nobody. Uh, it's Kubrick. Mm-hmm. Um, I know it is referenced in a bunch of other stuff, which I have... Like I, People have been like, oh, that's a reference to this. I'm like, oh, cool. Mm. Uh, moving on. And I know that it's, um, because I mentioned to a friend of mine that I was watching this and they were like, you're going to have different opinions about different parts of this movie. And I don't necessarily know what that means yet, Mm. but I will find out and I will report back to the listeners after I have seen the film. (laughs) Excellent. How are you with, um, with, with war films in general or, you know, particularly uh, we should say 20th century war films. Yeah, I, uh, my grandfather was a POW on the Thai Burma Railway. So for mm. me, war films, it depends a bit on the content as to how I end up looking at them. Mm. Um, I did a quick like search for buzzwords and things on terms of like what for mm. this film to make sure I'm like, I'm good to see this film before mm. I said yes. Uh, but so I kind of am a bit hit and miss with them, which is generally why I don't watch a lot of them mm. um, until I've had people watch them first. Unless you're counting films that I probably saw in English class in high school, which yeah. was not an insignificant number of war-related films. Let's yeah, be real. They, they did like war films for, for yeah, that. They, they're good for commentary on power struggles yeah, I watched Saving Private Ryan when I was way too young, I think, because we watched it in, in high school yeah. for something. So, yeah, uh, although we didn't get a full metal jacket, probably because it's R-rated. That'd so. do it, yeah. 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 Um, well, luckily uh, for you and for me, because I haven't seen full metal jacket okay. either, uh, we have someone who has seen the film, and it is Murray Jackson. Hello, Stephen. How are you, Murray? I'm actually really excited to be here. Yes, because uh, Full Metal Jacket, when we when we popped it up in our little uh, group, uh, where all of the panellists, uh, they all live in one share house, and yeah. I walk we all out. We out together. Yeah. <laughs> Once a week I walk out and go throw a DVD on the ground and go, who wants it? And Murray pounced on Full Metal Jacket and went... Uh, me, oh, me, I me, wrestled me. it. I wrestled with it, Stephen. Yes. Uh, so so in a vague, non-spoilery sort of way, um, why are you excited to be watching Full Metal Jacket? It's one of my favourite films, Stephen. Um, I, I, oh, it's hard. I mean, I really like Kubrick films. Mm. I, 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 this is up there with Clockwork Orange for me. Oh, um, wow. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um and for me, it was, you know, for the movie go with me, um, the exciting thing was this is, was the first Kubrick film I actually went to see at the cinema. Mm-hmm. Uh, because Kubrick was notoriously 
truculent in terms of his output um, and he hadn't made a film for seven years before this um, so uh, you know The Shining was the film that came out of his before Full Metal Jacket and I was far too young to go and see that mm. in the cinema um, so yeah uh, for, th- for that reason also because um, it's for me this this is the definitive 20th century oh, I don't know if I can say 20, definitive 20th century war film but for me it is mm. yeah above it's, something like Apocalypse Now uh, yeah okay. yeah for, for me yeah definitely because Apocalypse Now is great but it's a glorious mess mm. um, no this one really resonates because America when this film came out was still trying to reconcile its uh, relationship with Vietnam. Mm-hmm. They're still trying to get to grips because you have to understand that for years the Vietnam vets were pretty much despised. Mm-hmm. They, they'd lost a war, basically, or that's the way that the public saw it. Mm-hmm. Um, so this was, you know, came out at a time when there was a lot of Vietnam War films coming out. Mm-hmm. Um, most famously, Platoon. Yeah, came out about six months prior to it. Yeah, it was it was the same year. So, and it's really interesting comparing the two films. Mm. And I find that Full Metal Jacket is far more uh, in your face and less overly dramatic than Platoon. Platoon's a very good film. Mm. Nothing nothing wrong with Platoon. Great film, but Full Metal Jacket for me is is the defining film. Mm. And there was a film came out a, you know, 18 months or so after this called Casualties of War, which I was also a big fan of, um, Brian De Palma. Um, little writer here. Never, ever take someone to a war film on a first date. That's uh, I took my uh, ex-wife to, to see Casualties of War as our first date. Okay. Wasn't a good idea. Um Oh, but you, in the, the title ex-wife implies that you did get married, though. <laughs> yes, we did, in spite of that. Um, but, yeah, it, and I see probably more um, relationship between uh, Full Metal Jacket and Casualties of War than I do between Full Metal Jacket and Platoon, which came out, as I say, only a few months earlier. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it's Tour de Force Kubrick, basically. It's beautifully photographed. Um, it's narratively um, structured um, exceedingly well. It's it's basically a three-part film. Uh, so you, you, you've got the basic training, then you've got their entry into, or the introduction to Vietnam, and then you've got a third act, which you know, you'll see and it'll unfold. Um, yeah, it's just it's a really good film. Okay, well, with all that being said, shall we watch Full Metal Jacket? Sure. Okay, for those of you listening at home, pop on those DVDs, load up those streaming services, and prepare to find out how high you can indeed stack shit Uh as we watch Full Metal Jacket. Just finished watching Full Metal Jacket. Yes, Wait. sir. Yes, sir. Sir, yes, sir. I'm joined once again by Murray Jackson. <laughs> sir, yes, sir. And Science's own Kate O'Sullivan. Sir, yes, sir. Kate, did you enjoy the movie? <laughs> I did. Um, 
feel like I watched two different films, but I did enjoy it, and I don't really know how I feel yet. I'm still processing that film. That's, that's good. That's appropriate. Yeah. Because um, yeah. the, the first half of the movie is very much like the shouting we just did, uh, yeah. which uh, folks at home, I did not warn them we were going to nope. do that. That is some prime <laughs> improv acting chops from both of our guests. Uh, and then the second half of the film is... Uh, is yeah, just a, a Vietnam War flick. Oh, mm. war! It turns out is hell. Um, yeah, but yeah, it, it, it's. I'm kind of, I'm in a little bit of a weird position in terms of I actually am not quite sure how I feel about this film yet. Are, are, yeah, I, I think because I'm like sitting here being like, I remember bits of the first what I'm dubbing the first film, mm. which is sort of up to the war, mm. and then basic training. Of, yeah, yeah, and then there's sort of film two, which is from then on, and they feel different to each other and they really focus on different characters to each other and it's it's a weird yeah i just i haven't quite put my brain into mm. what I does think, that I mean the, especially um, knowing what's coming at the end of this chat that is a numerical rating that i have no idea how to give at the moment mm. i think um the best way to view it as a whole is to view it from the perspective of the, the, the bastardization of young men into becoming marines, you know, mm. thoughtless killing machines, which you see personified in that second half, and particularly in the, the coda of the film with, you know, this almost dispassionate applauditory dispatching of the sniper. Um mm. It is interesting because I obviously was thinking about other Kubrick films whilst watching mm. this, and it, it was reminding me at times of the, I guess, radicalization of the Drugs mm-hmm. or, or of the you know the lead in um, Clockwork Orange. Orange. Yeah, it, there, were, there were elements that were similar between Joker in this film and um, I've forgotten his name, but they had Drugs. Alex. Alex in um, in Clockwork Orange. And they're very different settings and they're very different films, but there was like a thematic link between those two. And whereas obviously Clockwork Orange is very much focused on Alex, um, this, you're right, Murray, I think shows quite a wide variety of these young men and showing how they are all in one way or another... Um, brutalised. Brutalised. And it's it's never really stated that oh, and it's morally wrong that this is happening, or no, it's necessary to win a war. It just is the truth of what's happening. But Joker Joker narrates this thing fairly dispassionately, but he, to a degree, retains his humanity because Mm. the the thing at the end there, with we uh, we walk away and we leave her for the rats, Mm. and he's like, "I, I can't do that. He does do that, but then his ending monologue... I almost feel undercuts that a little bit, mm-hmm. where he's going, I'm alive. He, he's almost become a bit like... Uh, Comfortably way... numb. Well, he becomes uh, um, Adam Baldwin's character. Animal Mother. Animal Mother. I keep wanting to call him Animal House, and it's mm. really annoying. <laughs> uh, animal Mother, uh, when when they're at the, the, the sort of faux funeral for their first squad commander, mm-hmm. where he says, better you than me. Hmm. It almost feels as though by the end of this film, what Joker has retained his humanity in his eyes by... Uh, killing the sniper rather than leaving her for dead because, you know, that was going to be an extremely long, drawn-out, painful death. But at the same time, he's... It, it, he's it, picked up his thousand-yard stare. Yeah, he's, it, he's dispassionate. 
Yeah, and it doesn't. It doesn't. I, I don't. It doesn't ring true for me. I don't actually believe mm. him at the end when he says, when he says that he's. But then fine. his whole thing is the duality of man. Yeah. Which yeah. He, he talks about, and Kate, I, I really feel that your response to the film is almost like, yeah, that's correct. That's totally right. That's how you should come out of this film feeling. I'm trying to cast my mind back 35 years and think, how did I feel walking out of this film? And I, I, I felt, I think, pretty much the same way, that the, the, the film is so dispassionate that there isn't a lot of cloying sentimentality in it, which there's a, a touch of that in Platoon. Um yeah. yeah, where you, you just go, my God, I've just been assaulted. I've just, my eyes have been assaulted with this stuff. See, I guess I guess my, my thinking is I'm like, the reason I feel like it almost feels like two separate films is I don't know that we get, not that I need to get to know Joker, quote unquote, in the sense that we might normally of a traditional character that carries us through an entire film. But I don't feel like I got to know Joker in the first half of the film. It's so heavily focused on... Vincent D'Onofrio trying to get himself over a wall mm. that you almost lose the other guys who were there a bit, almost a bit too much given we're going to lose that character in such a classically Kubrick way mm. halfway through the film. But this is, that's a deliberate, it's a deliberate narrative choice to, to, to focus no, no. to a large degree on Goma Pyle because you're watching his breakdown as a human being. Oh, no, no, and I totally agree, and I, I'm, I'm glad we got that. I mm. think what I more mean is that given we lose him halfway through, I think the, the difficulty for me there feels like that is a film. Yep. And we see the breakdown of Goma Pyle as yep. a film. Mm. And then we get the guy who's the journo in Vietnam and what he goes through from being a guy who's just a journo to going, going out and ending up with the Thousand Yards because he's had to kill somebody and a bit involved in all of this. And it almost feels like even though that character carries through from one part to the other, as does um, Cowboy, like as do a couple of other people that we see through it, it's so broke. It's so sick. It's like a sequel. Mm. It's not like, in my mind, from just watching it then, it doesn't feel like one film. It feels like two yeah. acts of a play. I, I actually two. break it down into three bits, oddly mm. enough. I, I break it down into the basic training, the... In Vietnam, up until the third act, which I call the siege, right, sure. or, or the sniper, mm. whatever, um, because I see that final, you know, thirty minutes or so sure. has been a completely separate segment of the film, mm. um, in in terms of how that plays out. But I don't think you're wrong. I, I think it was deliberately intended that way. The the fact that there is that complete fade out. Um, after the you know with the basic training, mm. and then the establishing shot of the prostitute walking into frame, to um, Nancy mm. Sinatra singing, "These boots are made for walking." I think yeah, that chapter's closed. This is a new chapter. Here we are. We've mm. gone from from basic training in the states to here we are. We're now in Vietnam. Yep, film number two. Mm. Don't have a problem with that myself, but no, I, I, I completely understand. Because my memory is, yeah, this film is actually cut into segments, isn't it? Mm. It's. I think the choice to cut it into segments works largely for this sort of um, broader view of, mm. yeah, we're 
radicalizing slash training these people to become soldiers um but at the same time i think a little bit a little bit of it comes at the sacrifice of getting to connect as a viewer with any of these characters which i also think is a good choice even though i I was watching the film going i don't really have anyone to to root for or to cheer for I don't know that I really want anyone to root for or cheer for because of what this film is is discussing and mm. what the film is exploring. And I think that's a really clever move. But because the, the major theme of the film is the brutalisation of young men um, exposed to you know, a war setting. Yeah. Um, um, the, the first half of the film, we should probably split it in mm. halves and have a mm. look. The first half of the film is... Um, Essentially, just a monologue from yeah. Lee Emery. Um, <laughs> it's it's relentless. Yeah, it's. I, I I checked my watch. I think it is fifteen to seventeen minutes of just him. That next scene where he's going, "You will do this. You will do that. You're a pile of shit, ain't you?" Like all this kind of stuff. And then they're doing something. a jelly donut. Yeah, and it's it really I think d- does a really effective job. I think of doing what you know the role of the drill sergeant Mm. in those early weeks is is you as the viewer spend 15 minutes essentially being like it's like i don't care where you've just come Mm. from you were in this movie you were in full metal jacket and this drill sergeant rules your life he rules the characters lives and is ruling your life as the viewer you know everything that happens happens on his whim he has ultimate power and control at the start of that and it's only after about 15 20 minutes we start to get scenes without him present and you start to get scenes between Joker and Pyle. Um, and they're quite short. And then they go back to to Lee Emery mm. just saying some of the funniest and most horrible things. Um, but there's something about it being in the drill sergeant setting that works, even though you're going there going, that's a terrible thing to say. But once again, the, 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 the clue to this film, mm. it, it, goes back, it goes to the establishing shot. With all those guys in the barber chair mm. losing their hair, mm. and as I said to you, it reminded me when I first watched it of of you know watching my uncle and my father share sheep on mm. a farm, um, you know just that complete removal of identity mm. at at the outset, and then this guy comes in and he is just on top of you the whole time, mm. breaking you down, breaking you down, breaking you down. Mm. And you as the viewer are 10 minutes in and you're exhausted by watching this relentless torrent mm. of abuse, which, as you say, yet occasionally you have to just let out a laugh because it's the only way of escaping that torrent of abuse. Mm. Um and also, I think partly, as the viewer, you're sitting there going, I, I think sometimes it's that laughter. It's the same way you laugh at something like Mr. Bean, where you're laughing and going, I'm really glad that's not me. I'm really glad that that is not me specifically stood in that room with Lee Emery shouting in my face. Hmm. Um, and it's 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 just really effective. And I, I, I don't know if I could have watched an entire film of, uh, of that shouting, but I, I think we got a pretty good idea of what that would be like. And it... It was just really, really interesting because it sets out this mindset. It, it acts as a code for the mindset for the characters we meet in the second mm. half of the film. Because even if they haven't gone specifically through mm. training with that character, with with um, with Hartman, they would have had similar drill sergeants. They would have had similar yeah. levels of discipline experience. They possibly had 
a goma pile, maybe not one that murdered their drill sergeant and committed suicide, but they had someone who was a bit of a, for want of a better word, a dropkick, who was sort of letting the squad down or, you know, these these different things. Is it, is it time to actually introduce to the, the audience the, the knowledge that Ali Ermi actually was a drill sergeant? Uh, he was, he, yeah. He served uh, in the in the US military and was... Uh, was pretty adept at, at, at drill sergeanting because that was his job for mm. quite some time. And um, yeah, I, I mean, so yeah, I think a lot of this came naturally to him. Yeah, and it was it was very effective. I think you know it was, it was very effective having this 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 person who has done this role, who was a soldier who was in the U.S. Marine Corps. Um, who served from 1961 to 1972. So he served during the time period mm. that this film mm. is set. Um, and he was... I mean, his performance is... I, I don't know... I should ask you, Kate, as the fellow first-time viewer, mm. I found it very engrossing, despite the fact mm. that I really didn't much care for him. Yeah, I, I think there's... It, it, it was interesting to me that the sort of in the first half, there were characters that I was like gravitated to as like oh i'm in- i'm interested in you whether i like you or otherwise mm. i find you interesting mm. he's one goma pal's one mm. um and it's i think it was just down to like that is commitment to a role mm. beyond the point of i don't want to say beyond the point of what is necessary but like you want method acting you've got method acting in someone screaming in your face like mm. that especially i think you said while we were watching it that he made what like he made up some of what was said, or could mm. well have made oh, up he just some. improvised. He, he, yeah. he yeah. made up about fifty percent of what was said. Yeah. Now, now obviously Kubrick, um, as a director, was a bit of a stickler for scripts, mm. but basically he sat down with Emery and they worked out. Okay, this is what we've got roughly needs to be said. So how would you say it? And so then you know lines like the. Um, you know, I bet you're the kind of guy that would fuck a guy in the ass and not have the decency to give him a reach around. So that was something that Emery contributed and actually improvised on the day. And when they shot that scene and he said that, uh, Kubrick called cut and he went, what, <laughs> essentially? <laughs> and then and then Emery was like, yeah, that's one that we used. And Kubrick went, okay, well, w- do it again, essentially. He was like, yeah, so he, he allowed him that Flexibility. That flexibility, because again, he had that lived experience, mm. um, and it it almost looked effortless. Watching him there doing those long shots where he's walking around to all the soldiers, like it's it's very performative, but it's it's also very believable. Mm. You know, you really believe that he's driving them hard, and for the most part, I believed he was driving them hard with a genuine belief that this is what they need yeah. to survive in the army. Like it did, it didn't feel like. Un, from his perspective, unnecessary cruelty, with one or two possible exceptions, like when he punches Joker in their their first interaction, which feels like a big no no from a drill sergeant. Like that that doesn't feel like it's something that that happens because that sets a bad example for you know you do that suddenly everyone's putting soap and socks and beating Vincent D'Onofrio with it. You know it's a bad example to set. Yeah. Um, but yeah, very very compelling performance. Mm. Mm. Just just uh, and the film's not short of them. Um, I mean, Vince D'Onofrio. Nofrio, yeah, he's he's really good in that yeah. stuff. And his his transformation from from like a kind of soft, doughy, but can't remove the smile from his face. Yeah, like I feel like I know a couple of people who are like 
mm. pile who are like that character and to see that person transformed into what he is by the end of his story where he has the Kubrick stare. He's the character that does the Kubrick stare in this film where he's been twisted and, and warped by his experiences and become this hateful, violent tool. Exactly mm. yeah. what they wanted him to become. Yeah, and he just was pointed slightly the wrong way. He he really wasn't that different for me from Animal Mother. Mm. Like, well, I think Animal Mother is really what you are supposed to look at Pyle and say, well, that's what he was supposed to become. Mm. And that's what they really wanted him to become. Yeah. Yeah. But it's it's a it's an incredible performance from, mm. from D'Onofrio though. And and I really believed that Joker was looking out for him. E- even if it was partly for self preservation when, when they started all getting punished for it. I, I still believe that Joker genuinely wanted him to do okay. Yeah, I did too. I, I think my my like big question mark over over pile is just like that guy's getting kicked out after week one. That mm. guy's not making it to week eight, mm. given how terrible he was. I in don't week think one. they actually did that though. Um, I think in Marine Corps, yeah, he even been booted if, down to arm, like he wouldn't have been, mar- been a Marine. Even, even mm. if if you were a conscript, they just brutalized you. Basically. But they could have conscripted him elsewhere in the army. That's the thing; like they wouldn't yeah. have let him be Marine Corps if he was. Like, they were losing a lot of people in I Vietnam. Yeah, but... I, I guess it would also be at the discretion of the drill sergeant. Yeah. And I guess if Hartman's there going, I've turned sex shit mm. like you into A-list soldiers, so God damn it, you're going to do it or you're going to drop dead here. Yeah, like, it's going to ruin my record mm. if I don't get you up to scratch. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, but I, I totally agree that like, there's a little bit of, maybe he shouldn't be here mm. and then by the end of it we, we see he definitely should i think at the end of the day you always have to accept with any film that there's going to be oh, some yeah. degree of artistic yeah. license anyway yeah. just to, course, to, to get the story across mm. yeah but the second half of the film mm. um it yeah look i understand what you say in terms of it kind of wanders narratively if you've got i suppose a an understanding of the the Vietnam War and the importance of Tet Mm. and how Tet was the point at which the war turned for the Americans, particularly at home in terms of public opinion. Mm. Um, So, you know, you're you're hitting those historical points in in this film as well. Um, And the idea that, you know, these uh, up until that point that these guys in the... um, uh, Stars and Stripes Brigade. There, you know, their their primary job was to get out there and get upskirt shots of mm. Anne Margaret. Um, that uh, you know, after Tet, it was get out there and really um, start telling the war from the perspective we're winning this thing. Mm. And I think it's interesting as well that Joker. We only really get to know him properly in the second half, and I feel like that's partly because when you're in the boot camp, you you there is no self-expression, there is nothing no. like that. You are being broken down to your base components to be rebuilt to be in the Marine Corps. Um, and then when we see him in the second half of the film, he is a bit of a shit stirrer. He's a bit of a you know playing around with that duality of, mm. of man thing where he's got the peace badge and the born to kill on the helmet, but he feels very much like he's just he's pushing back at boundaries 
and that's how he's chosen to do it in a way where he knows he can sort of get away with it but get under the skin of superiors and things like that like he he does seem as though he is a little bit there's definitely a rebellious streak in there um joke is yeah. just accepting of the situation as it as it as it comes up mm. he he's he's there to basically act as your narrator yeah but it, it it's it's interesting because he's I just feel like we see so little of that. Like, mm. and there are opportunities in his little stuff with Pyle in the first half that mm. we could get a little bit of that, mm. and we don't. And I get that that's a choice. Mm. Don't get me wrong, but it, yeah, it, I think that's part of where my like it feels so separate comes from is that you mm. don't, just don't get this. The bridging character isn't really a bridge. It's yeah. like we've jumped so much time, which we have, that it. This person is. We're seeing him very differently. Mm part two to part one and also we we don't really see i think at least for, for, from this first view we don't really see the the true consequence of him witnessing no pile murder hartman and then shoot himself no. and that and that whole sequence was shot very effectively and you know like you know we see vincent ofrio blow his brains out and it's a really effective um special effect that's done and it emphasizes the fact that you know he's he's joker has seen this mm. happen and whilst, you know, jumping straight to him being in Vietnam and, like, talking to the sex worker and then having the camera stolen is is sort of showing, okay, time has passed. I don't know that we ever really see the consequence of that action play out in the film, or at least not in an the, obvious way. The only way that I think of it as being connected is that he doesn't want to shoot the girl in the head at the end. Mm. Because that's, like, that's shooting someone in the head and he's seen what happens to someone's head when they get shot in the head. Mm. But even so... I, I agree. I don't know that I see that. Yeah, that the same that it's the same person. Mm. I suppose in Kubrick's defence, um, as somebody who likes Kubrick, um, I like Kubrick. I'm not. I'm not anti Kubrick. It's just I'd say there's there are a number of films where character development isn't the most important thing from Kubrick's perspective. It's mm. it's getting across the themes that he wants to get across. Yeah. So, I mean, perfect, another perfect example of that's 2001. You mm. never get really invested in any of the human characters in that. It's more the themes that he's he's bringing across. Yeah, and, and, and on, on that score, right, I, that's why I'm... I feel like I'm cutting this film a bit more slack than I would other films that maybe have big jumps without seeing those consequences mm. of character because it really strongly emphasises... Yeah, no, this is a film about the theme of... Um, of dehumanization mm. and it's hard to get to know and like someone when they're being dehumanized and i do think joker is dehumanized throughout the course of the events of the film it maybe just takes him longer than the boot camp um i, I think the the death of the cowboy is obviously going to be a key part of that but because we don't see him beyond that day we don't see him say another couple of months down the line still doing stuff in Vietnam or post-war back home. And I don't know that we necessarily needed to see that, but I wanted to. Uh, I was Even just curious. a scene with the other journos back in the bunk where he's suddenly got his thousand-yard stare. Like that, yeah. that moment of him walking back in and them commenting that he's now got one. Something that makes you go, oh, okay, this guy's changed from the events that he's seen. <coughs> but, but again, so that's... that's tying into character development. But it is, yeah, and that's the thing. But like... Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to go into bat here and say that that closing scene is the correct closing scene for the film mm. it because is. it it's banal. It is completely banal. Mm. You've got these marines 
arm to the teeth, having laid waste, marching across the land, singing the theme to the Mickey Mouse Club. Mm. I mean, if and once again, it's just Kubrick hammering home that theme, the banality of war, mm. the, the the stupidity of it, the the, the fact that you have this insane scene where these guys are singing, you know, a much-loved children's TV theme mm. as they're marching across the land, having laid waste to the local populace. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I honestly don't think there's any other way it could go out. I don't know. I want to see what happened with Joker. I, I don't want to know that he's anything more than what he was, which mm. is just a, a character in this film that's conveying the action in a dispassionate manner. Yeah. I think the whole film is very dispassionate. It is. And I think because that's quite an unusual thing, I think it is maybe, I'm sure people at home who have also watched this film for the mm. first time may find a similar thing of going, so many of our stories are driven where we have that connection to the a character. character. Yeah, and if you odd. want that, watch Platoon. By all means, yeah. watch Platoon and watch Charlie Sheen's character in, mm. in Platoon where he's doing the voiceover of the letters home to grandma. Mm. You will get that in that film. Yeah. This is a different film. It is. I will also say, um, this film, and I said it while we were watching, that this film didn't necessarily feel very Kubrick-like in the way that it was shot. It was still very well shot, and there were still a few sort mm. of telltale Kubrick shots. You know, we had uh, Pyle doing the, th- the, the, the Kubrick stare, into the camera with the you know the the brows uh, pointed down but a lot of the way that this film was shot didn't have um those those big lingering establishing shots largely handheld belly button cam yeah which i i think that that said though it really worked for this film Mm. i don't know that this film would have worked as well if you had long lingering shots of vietnam particularly as vietnam was uh london in this case Mm. because the film was shot on location Mm. in in the studios in um, in yeah just just north of London and maybe so. that's why I'm so like I'm struggling to sort of place it is that it doesn't feel like quote unquote Kubrick the way that I have experienced Kubrick stuff before but it's also not other films of its ilk so mm. it's this it's it's not sitting for me as something that is all about the themes mm. but it's not sitting as something that's character driven either and so I'm in this weird wasteland of Mm. Mm. Not what is it, but like that kind of feeling. I'm, of, um, I'm trying to dredge been. up what I felt when I first watched this film, mm. and I think I, w- my vague memory is that I was feeling a little lost mm. when I came because the, the the you know what was the last war film I had been to see, Platoon, mm. um, you know, <laughs> with Samuel Barber's Adagio for strings, you know. Bringing up the sentimentality as Sergeant um, Barnes is is killed in the rice field and you know slow motion raising his arms and mm. yeah, blah 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 and um. then and then this and then this you know you've yeah. got this film where it's quite visceral he just lays it out there it is mm. you've absorbed that fine we're moving on and it's a completely different film and I I think. Yeah, it was a little bit of what have I just watched? Mm. Yeah, it's it's very well made though. Like mm. like like I'm not I'm not sitting here going, God, what a crock of shit. Like no, it's really well made, well shot, 
um, like just that you can clearly tell there has been some of Kubrick's meticulousness going into it. Uh, the the set, set dressing, dressing, yeah, particularly in those battle sequences, is phenomenal. I it ma- it really made me kind of appreciate. Did it make you feel like you were in Vietnam? No, well, I haven't been to Vietnam, so uh, particularly not during wartime. So no. I, can't, I can't say. But it, I didn't feel like I was in London for no. starters, which is good. Um, but I felt like I was somewhere that was dangerous. I felt mm. like I was somewhere where, yeah, that this is a bad situation. It evoked other sort of war film environments, a little bit um, aspects of like Saving Private Ryan and, and you know, things like that, um, which is, I think is is effective because they're, they're, you know, films that I remember as being very effective of creating this feeling of, oh, this is a really terrible place to be, mm. you know, what, what, what an awful situation for these and yet people that to grim survive. sort of humor undercutting the thing the whole way through yeah but it's um with the the, the, yeah. the cheapness of life even down to the the point where they're trying to bargain down the cost of of the sex worker yeah you know yeah which was and again i think that that scene did a really fantastic job of re-emphasizing oh we've dehumanized and made these guys into essentially you know soldiers and that includes the fact that they view sex as something that it's like well we we can't have it with each other and even though the drill sergeant may have said we're married to our rifles we can't literally have sex with our rifles um it's so it's yeah the, the, the fact that their approach to sex is almost like buying a sandwich like it's it's a it's a fiscal thing yeah, they do the bargaining and then when the sex worker says she won't sleep with the black soldiers um and that one black soldier manages to convince her it's it's still all about the transaction it's it's not about her feelings it i don't even think it's about the men's feelings either it's it's just such a mechanical business exchange yeah, that, that's it, happening it really reminded me of um as a music theatre kid, um, Miss Saigon, in mm. the the way of that that sort of transactional nature that is brought up in that show, mm. we commented about the fact that um, that scene could very easily in any other film have been longer. Yeah, and it did not need to be, and it was the correct length because it did not need to be any longer than yeah. that. But it needed to be there, mm. and I think it also showed a lot of that opportunity of you know um, the gallows humour that is mm. present across soldiers across quite a lot of time you know the uh, the fact that cowboy at one point says in there uh we'll give you five dollars and a couple of rifles uh never use drop once you know Mm. which is just like such a dark thing to say but also is actually quite witty compared to a lot of the other lines that these soldiers are saying because they're not there for their wit they're there for how can i kill things Mm. um so it's yeah and, and and on on the same uh, topic though the, the the extremely casual racism that they're throwing around with each other like between animal mother my god yeah like you mm. know when when animal um animal mother is saying just just some really terrible things about about black people but none of the the black soldiers are going hey that's racist they're going they're, they're gonna then say something else that is i hitting him either about his masculinity or about his race or like it's just this constant jibing this constant joking of like trying to if you're doing these jokes then you're you know you're one of us and it's you know it, it it's it's boys will be boys in the worst sense mm-hmm. um it's mm. and it's 
it's the thing that in that setting, it's maybe a coping mechanism that is needed and not that I would say that it's appropriate behavior, but it is behavior that is in fitting with with the situation that they're in. But once again, you've got these guys joking and laughing with each other and when one of them dies, there's animal mother looking down at them going, rather you than me. Yeah, and it does make you go, that that connection that they're having isn't necessarily it's temporary. real. I mean, we see it because the connection that Joker and Cowboy have... Mm. Is, That's is a real one. Yeah, it's portrayed as much more genuine. And even though they're making jokes about like, I want to sleep with your sister better than sleeping with my mother, like that kind of thing, you still get the sense that even though they're saying things which are objectively The fact that they do bad, more than one hug back to back, you're like, yeah. hugs, yeah. true hugs, everything mm. about real the, hugs. Everything about the way they're implying yeah. that they'll have sex with each other's family members, it's not what they're saying, it's how they're saying it. Whereas for a lot of the other soldiers, it's quite cold and standoffish uh, and confrontational. And it does make me go, yeah, you guys are going to be a barrel of laughs when you get back to, to America, particularly when you get back and are vilified, as mm. indeed you know happened with the fact mm. that uh, the Vietnam War went well, the way that it did. As as um, crazy says, um, the guy who gets killed with the booby trap, um, mm. he goes, uh, "Should America be in Vietnam? I know I should be." Mm. Because he feels connected to what he does, which is, I yeah, I just love killing people. He says we're mm. jolly green giants, mm. yeah. and that you know that implies that once this is all over, it, that the fun's gone. Yeah, and it it's disappeared. How did you guys feel, uh, or did you have any reaction at the end to the revelation that the sniper is a, is a female? I kind of looked at it and went oh yeah that well i mean that tracks with my knowledge of of what happened in that war yeah i was gonna say my my knowledge of the vietnam war is too extensive for me to not have assumed that that was a possibility on the Mm. cards so no but also if i'd seen this film before i don't know working at multiple museums and therefore knowing a bunch of stuff about vietnam Mm. i might have Mm. felt differently When, when when it happened though it did make me go oh are they gonna are they gonna treat her worse that that did pop into my head where because there is this obviously very um toxic masculine culture around them i was looking mm. at it going are they going to give her a worse death are they going mm. to do things which are they wouldn't do to a male sniper even if it was like a young teen male sniper yeah. if you want that film you watch casualties of war mm. Mm. um i i do know that one of the things that was scripted was that um animal animal mother was going to decapitate her and throw her head out the window um and that was cut from from the final film so i don't know that they ever actually shot that doesn't also feel like his character doesn't i think the way that he deals with that situation feels correct yeah in terms of what we know about his character up until that point i don't i think decapitation would almost take him from being like i love my i love my rifle and my never-ending magazine of yeah. Full Metal Jackets to something different to that. So I'm glad they but didn't do that. You, I suppose we also should recognise the fact that Animal, for all his foibles, and the fact that you know once people are dead, he disconnects from them pretty instantly. Yeah. Mm. He's, he's the one who's very insistent about, we must go and rescue Doc J and 8-Ball. Mm. 
So he it's feels a real connection. He feels a real connection with his buddies. I no, I disagree. You do? I disagree. I think that was entirely for him to go and do big dick gun the glory, shooting time. The glory thing. Because because yeah. as soon as they get gunned down, yeah. like he just kinda goes, Oh, I better check the area more yeah, so. Like, like you could yeah, be like, right. Which which could tie into like that practicality. But I think because we've seen that disconnect and because we've seen him go better you than me before that happens, it did make me go I think he just wants to do it because he's like, I'm not letting one sniper beat an entire squad. Mm. I think it's pride. I think there's, it's pride for sure, but I also think that mm. that idea of you can't leave their bodies there is very tied into mm. some of the stuff from the beginning. When they're doing the chant back, and it's it's something about bringing their bodies back. Yeah, leave no man behind. But yeah. it's, it's bringing... It's, send, it's send me, ba- send me mm. back in a box is like what... I can't remember exactly what's chanted back, but mm. it's the idea of better I go over there and get killed and get sent back in a box mm. than... And like that idea of make sure that you bring me back in a box. So leaving someone's corpse on the battlefield is not an option. Yeah. But that feels more like well. more like part of an indoctrination into the culture. Yes. Well, it's, as opposed to him being like, no, nah, eight ball, my best friend. No, 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 exactly. It's, yeah, it's exactly. pretty much a tenet of, of the Marine Corps. It is the leave no, no man, man behind. behind. Yeah. Yeah. Simplify. Yeah, but leave a small sniper girl to die. Apparently. Well. Well, that's the enemy. That's okay. I, I suppose. Yeah. yeah. Um. Yeah. It's. It is a fascinating film. I, I am just sort of sitting sitting back in the, the afterglow and just going, it's it's very good, but I, I don't know. I it it, it actually it. took a while, this film, to seep in with mm. me. I think, it, I think I need to... Like, I will rate it today on how I feel today. Yeah. Sure. But I think if I watched it again a week or a month from now after it, this version of it settled in and then I watched it again, I think some of the stuff that you're talking about, I'd see it more than you see it watching it the first time. And I think that's a really tricky thing. And it happens with some Kubrick. Clockwork Orange did that to a couple of friends of mine where they needed to see it twice just to get it in mm. a way that meant that they could understand what the film was trying to do. I, I, um, I do actually, now that I think about it, do have one very clear memory of when I watched this film mm. and that is I came out feeling cold I came out feeling pretty empty and it happens every now and then with films I mean you know, you wanted an Australian film that did that to me Snowtown did that to mm-hmm. me mm-hmm. I came out feeling completely drained from having watched that film and it probably took me two or three of these sort of films to realize it's not a bad thing actually no. that's okay that's good you had a response to it mm-hmm. and i watched this film you know full metal jacket i watched this probably 20 times over the last 35 years i drag it out often mm-hmm. um i am completely drawn to it uh and i yeah you, you're making me think well, what is it that really draws me to it um I I just think, as I say, it's it's a really visceral um, exhibition of of young men being completely dehumanised, mm-hmm. mm. and that that's that's what Kubrick wanted to say. That's what war does to people. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, we we don't really have need for a um, what the science section in this one. No. It, it it's reasonably grounded in reality. I mean, my only question is like, but. Vincent D'Onofrio used a full metal jacket in his own skull. His skull would be exploded out the back. But that's just because I know vastly too much about how 
different types of boards mm. work. Well, y- y- um, there was a that's bri- about it. <laughs> there was a brief conversation about how quickly Cowboy died. Yeah, look, I just don't think he was shot in the right spot to bleed out that fast. Mm. Um, I'm perfectly happy for someone who's, a, you know, let's ask uh, Dr. Carmen Dolly uh, if that's, uh, <laughs> if that's yes, a thing. We, but uh... <laughs> When she's on for the next Disney mm. film. I'll yeah. go, by the way. I, yeah. Just a question. We're just going to um, show this in slow motion, yeah. Carmen. Just walk us through this. So, yes. um, I mean, I could check with some brother like my brothers or whatever but i think it's just one of those things where i'm like i feel like you were sh- if you were shot through the heart or something or like dead through the aorta or dead through the um even dead through your- you assume it didn't nick his spine not it's still not bleeding out that fast though like a lot of like it's not like it hit your femoral or your where you, your blood's yeah. pumping a lot really fast and then if that was the case you wouldn't get the very convenient little blood drizzle out Listen, the side of your face. I'll, I'll walk so, you through the JFK magic bullet theory here. Yeah, mm, um, indeed. But just, you know, that's the, they're little light criticisms and they often happen in films. So yes. I'm not going to get too mad about them. That's fair. Uh, would you like some trivia about uh, Full Metal Jacket? Absolutely. Let's see if you can find something I don't know, Stephen. Oh, we'll find <laughs> out. Well, all of this trivia comes from IMDb. So if it's not true, don't blame me. Uh, the first bit of trivia is to do with uh, Gunnery Sergeant Hartman. Mm. Um his performance and the recruits' reactions were obviously going to be key to making this film seem as realistic and as engaging as possible. So in order to do this, uh, Matthew Modine, Vince D'Onofrio and the other actors playing the recruits never met Emery until they were on set shooting. I'll correct you there, Stephen. Ermy. Ermy. Sorry, I've been saying Emery. I've been saying Lee Emery this whole time. Uh, no, Ermy. Ermy. Uh, the fastest milkman in the West. Um Kubrick also saw to it that Ermi didn't fraternise with the actors between takes. Um, so again, very much that keep him distant, keep him as the enemy, I guess, in, in that setting. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I said method acting before. It kind of reinforces that a bit for for me in terms of if that <clears> makes <throat> sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Also, I wouldn't want to hear him talking to me after he's been shouting at me for ages. I'd be like, I've heard your voice so much today. Please stop talking. I don't know. Part of me just, go, like, just goes... I'm sorry. Would be nice just uh, mm. if you've been yelled at all. Oh, day, if you've but, if yeah. you've ever seen an interview with him, he he actually comes across as quite a, a mild mannered, quite yeah. a charming guy. Mm. I can imagine, which is exactly what you wouldn't want, especially if you're if you're the person in the background of the shot while someone's getting yelled at, just yeah. trying really hard not to smile. Yeah. yeah. The th- the thing that I have to give to the actors is none of them, without cause, cracked a smile. Yeah. Mm. Some real discipline there, which is what you want from the U.S. Marines, even in film. Yeah. Uh, Private Joker's shirt on Paris Island reveals that his name is J.T. Davis. Yes. This was a deliberate reference to uh, James T. Davis, the first officially recognised U.S. casualty in Vietnam who was killed in 1961. Oh, okay. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. That's a nice touch. Yeah. Um, to, to sort of honour that. Hmm. That's yeah. as him and Pyle climb over the obstacle. Yeah, yeah. when they're up the back. Yeah. Um, Vince D'Onofrio heard of the auditions for the film through Matthew Modine. Mm. Uh, using a rented video camera and dressed in army fatigues, he recorded his audition for the part of Private Pyle. At the time, D'Onofrio was working as a bouncer in a club and had only acted in a few projects, so didn't expect much. Uh, when Kubrick and his assistant called him up about the role, D'Onofrio hung up thinking that someone was pranking him. Uh, they called back and were able to convince him that they were the real thing and that they were genuinely interested. D'Onofrio has said subsequently he owes his career to Kubrick casting him in that film. Mm. Which I would not be like, yeah, I 
everything that I can think of Vincent D'Onofrio in, I can see in that mm. that act, that series of scene, like all the different things that he did in that scene work. Yeah, and I mean he's a fantastic actor. Yeah, and I'm really glad glad he got his break. Yeah, because he's he's been fantastic for thirty plus years mm. at this point. Uh, the entire film was shot in England, <laughs> not in mm. uh, America or indeed Vietnam. Mm. Uh, the Pinewood Studios and the Bassingbourne Barracks mm. were used uh, for uh, the shooting. Footage of an actual graduation ceremony at Paris Island was used in the film uh, with an insert from England. Mixed I did notice that. that. And mm. that's like one of those things where you just go, oh, bummer. Um, like that I noticed it. Not I'll have to go back and look at that. It's mm. literally just the marching it's the big groups marching past with the crowd in the front yeah mm. and it's very to me anyway mm. very clearly and then they cut and they're marching but they're very much skewed to one side of the frame so that you don't have to have all the rest of it yeah yeah it was it was a slightly different grain to the film yeah was was it and i knew it was coming and then when it but i wasn't looking for it actively no but it popped up and i went oh that must be where they use the actual footage i didn't know there was gonna be actual footage and i went oh that's mm. real yeah um, for the final battle scene set in Hue, um, Stanley Kubrick was able to use the abandoned gasworks uh, near the River Thames. Researchers painstakingly went through dozens of shots of the real uh, battle scene in order to make uh, this gasworks look authentic and added palm trees uh, to create a tropical effect. Hmm. And it works. And boy, I'm just trying to think which episodes of Doctor Who were shot there. So many. <laughs> <around that time. laughs> Um, Arnold Schwarzenegger was offered a role in this film, apparently. Oh. Was it? Ooh, let me think. Animal Mother. Yeah, it would have been Animal Mother. It was right? Animal yeah. Mother. Mm. Uh, reportedly, Schwarzenegger was con- was considered. But also, no. Uh, well, <laughs> well, he turned it down because uh, to... they couldn't say hasta la vista. <laughs> no, they turned it. He turned it down uh, in order to star in 1987. <laughs> the Running the Man. The Running Man. Yes. Which is uh, I a think... glorious piece of crap. Uh, yeah, uh, surprising no one. I haven't seen it. <laughs> yes, no, we, we we managed to squeeze the Running Man into our first year mm. of podcasts. Oh, good. It's uh, it's really cheesy, trashy, B grade cheesiness. And just... honestly, I think Schwarzenegger was better off being in that than being in this. I think Adam Baldwin is the correct choice. For Adam. I don't know how it would have gone with a very Austrian sounding dude. Playing the role, to be honest. Yeah, I, I don't. I think it would have been a real, like, too much of a gear change to be like, what's Arnold Schwarzenegger doing in this film? You know, I mean, it'd be like if Prince was in it. Like, it's just it feels wrong. I mean, I mm. did the second that Adam Baldwin walked. I was like, oh hi, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I know you. But also, that's because firing at the sniper and going, I'll be back. But mm. yeah, like he, I don't know. I don't feel like he plays. Like silly, and I not I use that term very lightly, but like silly enough to do what Baldwin did as Animal Mother, like that mm. sense of fun in the serious and the yeah 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 it it would have been different kind different. of film would have been yeah. weird um yeah but yeah there we go uh, and finally instead of singing the Mickey Mouse Club march the Marines were originally going to be whistling the Woody Woodpecker theme. But Kubrick couldn't get the rights. But apparently they could get the rights to the Mickey Mouse Club. Which is interesting. Yeah, because I was watching that scene and going, oh, I bet certain executives at Disney would Disney, love that. Yeah. They'd have absolutely loved that being out there. And I bet they wouldn't have had a problem with that at all. I wonder if that's to do with 
the fact that they did though. Like that mm. that's a thing that Marines did sing. Or yeah. what like it's one of those things where you you almost let them do it because it is associated in people who are likely to see this film who were in the Marine Corps mm. or were in the armed forces. It's the kind of song that probably it's the, it's the right rhythm, it's the right beat pattern that mm. <laughs> probably you know? someone someone sitting down with a Disney executive going We've worked out a way in which Disney can be in an R-rated film. Mm, possibly. Um, yeah, I, I just... The the idea of them whistling the Woody Woodpecker theme is also mm. quite quite amusing. But um, I, I think maybe the Mickey Mouse Club is actually a more effective yeah. tune to pick. Yeah, I'm not sure about Joker going... <laughs> no, definitely would have, would have been uh, slightly off and maybe would have ruined the ending. Uh, so, all that remains is for us to score the film. And Kate, you do get to go first because yeah, it was your first time watching A Full Metal Jacket. What score would you give this film out of 10? God, this is this is one of, as I said, I think I have to score this based on like my brain watching it now, not what it could be and not like, not what, what I want it to do. Mm. Um, I think it's beautiful. I think it's worth watching and I'm not walking away from it going, I don't want to watch it again. Mm. Um... But I also don't know how I feel about it. So I'm going to give it the score everyone gives things when they don't know what else to give it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm going to give it seven never-ending bandoliers of FMJs out of ten. Excellent. <laughs> uh, what about yourself, Murray? What would you give this? Well, Stephen, you are aware of the fact that this was on my shortlist for my um, personal choice mm-hmm. uh, in you know, after the first 25 films I'd watched. Mm-hmm. Um as part of this podcast. Uh, so, look, it's going to come as no surprise. It's one of my favourite films. I, I just love it to death. Um, mm. Pardon the pun. Um, and I'll return to this film again and again. I have no problem with people um, not knowing how they feel about it. In a way, I almost go, yeah, that's exactly how you should feel mm. about the film. Um, and hopefully, yeah, maybe you do return to it. And if you don't, well, that's that's cool too. Um, for me, yeah, look, I'm, I'm just going to give it um, 10 jelly donuts. Mm. Yeah, I wrote that score down uh, a couple of minutes ago because I, I was so confident. Can, can confirm, 10 out of 10. Ah. Um, for, for me, it's, yeah, it's it's good. It's, mm. it's a really good film. Um, it's not the sort of film that I would probably seek out and watch. I mean, I'm... 30 plus years old at this point and I've never gone I'm going to watch Full Metal Jacket yeah. so it, it, it probably isn't my type of film but it's it's really well made I, it was really great to see Matthew Modine and Vince D'Onofrio as, as when they're quite young and, mm. and putting in great performances it's um, yeah it's it's good but similarly I don't know that I really feel much <laughs> towards this film other than it was very good so much material to mm. draw from for your R-rated um, uh, solo show there mm. from from Hartman's performance. I mean, there is there is certainly mm. quite a lot there, and and Hartman was a highlight. Yeah, well and truly. Um, so, so much so, this was the thing I knew about Full Metal Jacket was you know that that drill sergeant, uh, that extreme drill sergeant character was um, was absolutely in there. So yeah. Um, the problem is, is now I can't think what to use as, as a scoring mechanism. Oh, I stole your jelly, jelly donut, did I? I'm sorry. Uh, no. No, it's, it's hard because there's not a lot of 
object you world peace badges on your with matching with your yeah yeah Yeah. uh i'm i'm gonna give it seven and a half jamming m14s or m16s um because yeah it's it's really good but i feel a a bit like yourself kate it's like maybe it's something that with time i will feel more fondly towards maybe it's something that i'll feel less fond towards I, i just don't know at this point but I think I'll be I'll be thinking about it. Maybe not quite as much as something like uh, The Wicker Man, which uh, <laughs> is still very much in my head. Um, oh, I'm glad I put that there for you, Stephen. Yes, yes. Or indeed, um, oh God, we, when we did um, Lake Mungo, mm. uh, which was almost six months ago now, and I still think about that film at least once a week. Yeah, um, yeah like I, I think this is one that I'll be sort of ruminating on and coming back to over over time. Um, and it's it's a good watch. It, yeah. it, it should be watched, I'd say that. It um, definitely should be watched. Yeah. Uh, even if you are a little bit faint of heart, I think it's... It, it, it is not an mm. R-rated film in the way that I've had a problem watching it or felt uncomfortable watching it mm. in any point in the film. Yeah. Um, if that helps people who are listening. Mm. It's not something where I went, sat there being like, well, this is... No. Mm. No, no, thank you. There's, there's not a, a heap not of, not a heap of not, visceral violence not, in it. Some of the, it needs the rating, but yeah. it's certainly not um, unwatchable. Yeah, the, the violence respect. we see, particularly the the gunshot violence, is yeah. is pretty extreme. But yeah. it's also like completely appropriate for yeah. for the film and for what the story is. So, yeah, uh, go watch it if you haven't watched it already. Uh, go and watch Full Metal Jacket. And um, Murray and Kate, thank you so much for joining me on this episode of the Cinema Catch Up Club. Simplify. Simplify. Yes, um, and for those of you listening at home, thank you for listening in. Uh, get ready for the plugs, because here they come. Uh, we have got uh, a Facebook page. Uh, you can search for us there if you're on Facebook. Just search for the Cinema Catch-Up Club. Give us a like. Uh, search for the Cinema Catch-Up Club, maggots! <laughs> exactly. Sir, yes, sir! And uh, once you've done that, um, yeah, give it a like. You'll get news and updates uh, every week. We can also be subscribed to How iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud. I don't care which service you use. I just care that you click subscribe. Sir, yes, sir. There was a lot of spit that came out when I did that, so I'm not going to do that again. I'm so sorry, Murray. I spat all over your coffee table. There. Uh, and Drop uh, and give me 25. Sir, yes, sir. One, uh, two, and three, For those four. of you who want to join our Patreon, you can do so. Uh, you can find us on Patreon. Uh, just search for the Cinema Catch-Up Club there or type in patreon.com forward slash podcast, and for as little as a dollar a month you can get all sorts of bonus goodies and features. But that is all for this week. So until next time, Temperify, everybody! <laughs> <laughs>